quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. You definitely want to make sure that all your partners are with you and really focused on what if this deal goes south? Do we have the capital? Are we all on the same page? Are we willing to chip in? Are we willing to do what it takes? Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Robert Ritzenthaler. Robert's joining us from Bradenton, Florida. He's the CEO and founder of REM Capital, which focuses on value add and new development, multifamily opportunities and markets across the United States. Current portfolio of around 350 million assets under management across eight states with a total door count over 3,400. Robert, can you tell us a little more about your background and what you're currently focused on? You bet. And appreciate you having me on. Excited Absolutely. to be here. And thanks for the intro. That sounds more impressive than it is, but <laughs> they're good numbers for sure. Yeah, that, that's they, they podcast well. Right. All right. Exactly. Yes. Just a little background about myself. I actually, ironically enough, grew up in the construction business. My dad was a home builder, so kind of had real estate in my blood from the beginning. And the irony, of course, is that I thought I was going to take over his business until he said, no way, this is a terrible business, do something else. <laughs> so I went off, got my finance degree, actually started off in engineering, then went finance and then did that for a couple of years in New York on Wall Street. And then the market crash of 2000, which we all probably remember, it wasn't too long ago. And then I had a buddy of mine reach out to me and said, hey, come on over here, help us out. We got a growing real estate business. So it was a perfect fit from construction background, the finance, and the rest is kind of history at that point. Just been on the corporate side for the better part of 20 years. And about four years ago, decided it was time to hang a shingle and go to town. Nice. You had some experience on Wall Street in uh, hedge yes. fund management? Yep. So I worked for a large company, CIBC, worked with one of their hedge funds, asset management division, and then left, started my own. And again, that was back in the day when you could pretty much print money if you knew what you were doing. Even That was pre-2000, you said. That was pre-2000, yeah. So that exactly. was like dot-com yep. bubble. That was major dot-com bubble. Yes, gotcha. exactly. So my specialty was pre-IPO shares of technology companies. <laughs> so gotcha. I was the bubble of the bubble. <laughs> yeah, wow. Let's actually dive into that because I have from you in our pre-show notes that you put an emphasis, which you learned from your father and his construction business on the risk involved in leverage and making yep. sure that you have a conservative long-term approach. You just introed yourself as the bubble of the bubble of the dot-com yep. bubble. So let's dive into that, but let's keep it to your multifamily holdings now. First of all, with REM Capital, 350 million AUM, what is your role in that? Are you a member of the GP? Are you the whole GP? So I've got a couple partners and I'm the managing partner. So the beginning, as you know, when you first start, you kind of do a little bit of everything. And then as you begin to grow, yes. you can bring people on and get some help, which is great. <laughs> We're actually in the process right now, kind of building out the leadership team, which is awesome. I just had an interview with a guy that we'll probably bring on as an asset manager. So we're building that team out so that it's not all on my shoulders because it's way past me being able to do it. But at the end of the day, I'm kind of the operator, the investor, the GP, the managing partner, you name it, we get it done, which is great. No complaints there. 
But going back to what you said about the leverage thing, I think one of the things that you realize is just because somebody says something and just because you see it growing up doesn't necessarily mean that it sinks in. <laughs> so right. I think for me, kind of going off to Wall Street, making big bucks, thinking I was all that hot shot, whatever. Sometimes you have to learn the hard way. And I think it wasn't until after the market crash that I was able to look back and realize, you know, my dad was pretty smart and maybe I should follow that model. And of course, that's what I've brought forward today. The other thing too, when you're 25 years old, let's be honest, you don't know as much, even though we think we do, but we don't know as much as when we're 45. And I think that's played into a huge role in where I am today. I was single. I had no responsibilities. Now I've got a family and, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. Totally, it's a good thing, totally. right? <laughs> so it's all good. Robert, we're recording at the end of April, 2022. 2022 has been a heck of a year for interest rates for a variety of factors. And April's been a month. So we have a very sophisticated audience, Robert, for the best ever podcast. So let's take a step beyond the generic value of long-term debt, because that's something that this audience is already aware of. Let me ask you though, how the current interest rate climate is impacting your investing decisions? That's a great question. And it's a question that I get a lot actually too. I think the key here is if you have been underwriting to more of a market growth rate over the past couple of years, I think your underwriting has to change very quickly because you're going to be adjusting to the new interest rate environment. If you've been underwriting to a, call it a 10, 20 year average, then your underwriting doesn't change as much because your whole period is typically longer, your structure is more stable, that kind of thing. So there are kind of two boats here that I often have to kind of nuance the answer to. But either way, I think the underwriting changes. The big question is, to your point, do you stick with long-term debt or do you look at more of a bridge option? And that's kind of the big question that I find happening more often is, what's the risk reward on long-term fixed debt versus bridge? Year ago, agencies were much more competitive than they are today because of the interest rate environment. So you got to ask yourself, if I'm giving up a point, point and a half, maybe two points in some cases, to get an agency loan that's 10 years out, but I'm taking a bridge debt that's got a floater that I can cap, yes, I'm getting a shorter term, but if I'm saving a point or two, there's value there. And I think that's something that we're always looking at from a debt structuring standpoint is, what's our risk return? And how does Robert, that affect the deal? Explain how choosing bridge debt now would save you points of interest. Sure. Let's, so as an example, yeah, right now, 10-year debt is 45 to 5% if you go and get an agency loan right now. Yeah. Our bridge debt right now is anywhere from 310 to 360. So point and a half, maybe two points. It's a pretty big spread. Now, granted, it's a floater but you can come in with the cap. You can lock in your risk there. So you're not really floating for good. And the thought is if your float goes up to 5% and we all think it's probably going to come back down at some point. Well, I shouldn't say we all think, but I think it will. Then the thought is, well, I'm saving every dollar below 5% I'm saving and I can come back and refinance in five years when I expect the rates to be lower and I'm not locked in at 5%. So it's not always the case, obviously, but in the current environment, that's how we look at it for what the deals we're looking at. And what you're taking on is, I guess, the risk that five years from now, 
we're, we're worse off when it comes to the debt picture. Exactly. That's really the risk is that if rates go from three to five to 7%, and in five years, you're in a really bad environment, then we've got a problem. <laughs> so yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, I really believe that you saw the GDP numbers come out for the first quarter, we contracted 1.4%. And I've been saying this for a while. I think the economy is much weaker than we're expecting. I think the Fed knows it, but there's a little bit of politics involved here. (laughs) So they've got to keep the demographic happy, if you will. But I think the economy really isn't that strong. We've got a supply side issue as much as anything else. And you push the rates too far, we're going to be in a recessionary environment pretty quickly. And then the rates are going to have to come back down. So again, everybody's got their different perspective on it, but that's what I'm seeing. Really the biggest thing that we're starting to track, not starting to track, we're really looking at more in depth, is the income level of our residents on a property by property basis. And what I want to do is get ahead of the curve so that if we start to see income growth slow, we're going to know ahead of time that, hey, by the way, incomes are growing 10%, rents can't grow 20 We've got to have this reconciliation right. at some point. So that's what we're looking at as one of our barometers out ahead of the curve in kind of preparation for what may happen on the job front. Totally. Robert, you said this is a consideration that you guys are making, whether or not you go bridge debt or go for the longer 10-year term agency debt now that may be a little more expensive. What are you deciding? What is it that you're putting into practice? Most, I don't know if I'd say most, but I'd say probably half of our deals, we're choosing the bridge option right now because we think it gives us more flexibility, definitely gives us some downside on the cost of our debt and gives us the ability to be flexible going forward with what we're anticipating to be a short-term increase and then a leveling out. Maybe not back to zero like it is today, but I think it certainly won't stay up there based on the economic data that we're seeing. So we'll see. At the end of the day, we all make decisions based on what we think is out there. And that's kind of how we're seeing it today. Gotcha. So do you have an example of a time where you had to choose between these two options recently and what you chose? Yeah, we are actually working on a project right now where we've got both options on the table. And that's exactly the math that I related a second ago is that we're looking at an agency product that's in the high fours, low fives versus a bridge product that's in the low threes. So it's almost a two point spread and the leverage is about the same. Leverage is actually a little bit better But even if you take the same leverage point, it's like a point and a half to two points. So it's a pretty big difference. The caps are expensive. We all know that. They've gone up 10, 20 times what they were a year ago. But even after you factor that in, you've got some pretty big fudge factor there. And if you're getting a two or three-year cap, you've got some room in there to move. So again, we all take risks, but that's what we're looking at right now. We'd rather take that risk and give ourselves the upside on the back end versus locking it in at five. To be specific, you're going to go with the bridge debt. Yes, on the most recent one that we're doing, correct. And that is because the savings of the point and a half or two on the interest rate for the next five years, the savings there outweigh the way that you calculate the risk of what interest rates are five years from now. Correct. Exactly. Gotcha. Yes. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but 
you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. Are you a real estate investor looking to break in the multifamily? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 23rd through 25th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from high-level apartment investing experts while networking with over 700 investors. If that's not enough for you, Shaq, yes, Shaquille O'Neal, Barbara Corcoran, Jocko Willink will be there as well. Be sure to secure your tickets at mfincon.com to find out more. VIP ticket holders can rub shoulders with these high-level speakers after their sessions. For details on sponsorship opportunities and tickets, visit mfincon.com. Use the promo code BESTEVER and get $200 off your tickets. That's mfincon.com, promo code BESTEVER. Robert, I want to take this conversation in a bit of a different direction and hijack the podcast again for my own needs and just bring the best ever listeners along. So Robert, this is the best real estate investing advice ever show. So I'm asking for advice. I am an apartment owner operator in Cincinnati, Ohio. I understand from our pre-show conversation that you have some assets in Cincinnati. So you're fairly familiar. Not interested in diving into the nitty gritty of the Cincinnati market unless that's where this conversation heads. I have another thought here because this is actually happening in my portfolio. I'll keep it surface level to be relatable, but I have some C-class assets and some A-class assets based on location, not property type. My A-class stuff was built in the 1800s. If you're familiar with Cincinnati, Robert, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The really trendy downtown is all really old construction with very updated mechanicals. Right. I am at a position now where my entire portfolio has long-term fixed debt in the threes, except for one of my buildings that I got into the twos. And I've got one at 4%, 15-15, it's college fund property. My daughter's too. Nice, um, nice. You graduate from high school, it's paid off. Right. I'm in a position where with my A-class properties, my cosmetic finishes and my rents have fallen well behind the market, if I'm being Hmm. honest, because Hmm. we've seen a lot of gentrification and Mm -hmm. other similar apartments in the same area on the same street, on the same block are able to command higher rents with nicer finishes. Hmm. My capital is limited, Robert. Sure. And so the generic question here is, I think my debt and the current debt picture plays a role in this. Should I take my limited capital and spend it improving on the great location properties that I already have to command market rents or even possibly do a moderate renovation and then furnish and go short-term rental or midterm rental because of the walkability, the desirability of the location? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or do I take that capital and put it in an acquisition, buy something new? Generally speaking, between those two options, 
Any follow-up questions you need to ask, feel free, Robert. But what are you feeling here? What do you recommend? I like the shout out to the Queen City, first of all. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) That's actually really cool. I think that's a great scenario. So I'm assuming you don't have a million dollars to just write checks and do CapEx. So that's out of the question, right? (laughs) Yes. Not that many digits, no. (laughs) Right, right, right. So I guess the way I look at it is twofold. One, if you have another opportunity where you think you could generate a better return, that might be the direction that I would go. However, your prepay on your existing loan probably comes into play more than anything else. So I'll just give you an example for us. We've got an asset in Dallas right now. We've owned it for a few years, long-term debt, lots of offers coming in. And the way I pretty much present it is, guys, if you're willing to give me an offer at market rate and you're okay picking up the prepay, we might have a deal. But if you're not willing to pick up the prepay and the prepay is 5 million bucks, probably doesn't make sense. I can hang on to the asset. It's going to continue to appreciate. Sure. So that's some of the analysis that we'll do in our own portfolio, to your point, where I'll have to kind of look at what's the value that I could get if I sell it. Then I take that money and I roll it over. If that rollover return is higher than what I could do with the existing asset, keeping where it is, reinvesting in it, then it probably makes sense to do that. I'm assuming you can do a 1031 because obviously the tax consequences also come into play. Of course. Um, But that's how I would look at it. And I would say that it's not always a clear answer until you really dig into the details because there's things like management. If you're really good at management, you may say, absolutely, I know I can do this. Or maybe you're good at construction. You're like, you know what? I can do half the construction myself. Well, now all of a sudden that equation changes. Back in the day, I did half the stuff myself and probably added millions of dollars worth of value without even realizing it. (laughs) But at the end of the day, you're getting an ROI on that value. And that's something to take into consideration. So I think from a management perspective and an ownership perspective, I always like to look at both of those. And then you mentioned the short-term rental question. Man, I've heard of some people that have gone out there, converted their long-term into short-term And the numbers they're spitting off are unbelievable. So if you're downtown, high walkability score, and you can put some money in and crank out a great return, that's a real option. A 200 unit trying to convert that, not really possible. But you've got a small two, three, four unit, even a single unit like that. I think it's a legitimate option. And especially with where things are going with remote work and people traveling. And Cincinnati is a great city. A lot of people flying in and out. You know that. I don't know. I would look at those numbers too, because it's crazy. It's good. Let's start a hopeful comment firestorm here. Let me give you some (laughs) some more numbers here. Because the the question is, let's say it's a hypothetical $100,000. And I can spend that $100,000 putting top of the line A-class cosmetic finishes in seven apartments downtown within two or three blocks of Washington Park in Over the Rhine, since you know mm-hmm. Cincinnati. Yep. 100 grand, seven units, that won't furnish them. So short-term rental, medium-term rental, would it would require an additional capital investment. Or that $100,000 could be the down payment on the acquisition of a new four to six unit building in a similar neighborhood that probably needs a little bit of work. So what do I do? Do I renovate my units? And I'm not looking at all the numbers right now. So for $100,000, I could increase my rents by $25,000 a year. Or I could buy another property. Now, saying these things out loud, Robert, 
I don't think I'll get $25,000 a year in cash flow, a 25% return spending my hundred grand on a new building. However, mm. I'll have more units in a rapidly appreciating area so that my equity is appreciating in more spaces and growing faster. So what, mm-hmm. what do you think? To your point, if your ROI is 25%, that's not bad because most likely trying to get another deal at 25 or better is a challenge. I think in this market, if you can even hit 20, you're in good shape. So I would lean towards saying that probably makes sense. And that was my question. If you can do 30,000 or more, I'd probably spend the 100,000. Now, then the next question is, you probably need to spend another 100,000, maybe 150,000 to furnish it. But if that gave you a better than, let's say, 60 or $70,000 pop in income, hands down, you would do it. Now, the one downside is management. Obviously, the Airbnb type model takes more management, but factor in whatever your 5, 10% management fee whatever that is, and you may be ahead. But that's to your point. That's exact math that I do. If that ROI exceeds a new deal, then it probably makes sense. Less a few extra expenses to your points, and maybe 25 is more like 20. 25 for us is kind of the bottom line, really more like 30%. And most of the time, as you know, in these value-add type deals, we want to see closer to 50% where we're getting a two-year payback, the worst case three-year payback. So I think in that scenario, you're kind of borderline, depending on what additional expenses you have. And if it drops closer to 20, you might say, eh, it's not worth it. Let's go get a new deal. Capture my upside. But again, if your new deal isn't in over the Rhine, then maybe your appreciation isn't as high. There's those questions too. So purely on cash flow, given my scenario, which is hopefully relatable to a lot of best ever listeners, but certainly not relatable to all of them. If it's just on a cash flow perspective, you're absolutely right. I think I increase my cash flow more by investing my money in the properties that I already have. Not to mention these properties are on 30 year fixed rate debt at three and a quarter and three and a half percent, which I'm not going to see again for a very long time, if ever. Yep. However, if I go buy another building now, I can make the decision to do all of the renovation later and I'll have three buildings to do it with instead of two. So that's where I find myself. Best ever listeners, if you find yourself in a similar situation, I think it's a question of whether you prioritize long-term growth or cash flow currently. And Mm -hmm. if you're an owner operator, considering that the portfolio that you already own and manage, you understand. You're taking on a lot less hassle (laughs) and a lot less risk renovating units you already understand and buildings you understand than in acquiring a new building, especially if it's in a neighborhood like central Cincinnati and it was built in 1870 because Lord knows what's in those walls. Actually on that note about central Cincinnati, Robert, where are your properties in Cincinnati? What do you got here? We are kind of all over the place. So we've got a couple on the West side. We've got one up North side. We've got two in, uh, what is it? Did you say you have a building in North side? Yep. And then we've got two up in, uh, well, they're not in the same neighborhood, but it's up Roselawn, and then one just east of there. So we're kind of anywhere from one o'clock all the way around to about sort of nine o'clock from downtown. And they're all about 10 minutes outside of downtown. So nothing downtown yet. My gut tells me C-class value add cash flow. Absolutely. Yeah, based on the neighborhoods (laughs) that you're naming. Actually, it's funny because we got into Cincinnati. We wanted to be in Cincinnati. Took a while to find something. Our first deal we bought... And we have put very little into it so far, although I don't want to get too far behind the curve. Bottom line, the place has stayed 100% occupied. We've raised rents $300 a month, and we're still 100% occupied. What neighborhood is this? It's crazy. Up there on north side. 
it's just unbelievable how strong that market's been. It's an area that, as you know, it's improving. People want to move there. I think customer service and how we handle the residents is a big piece of it. But nonetheless, the market has been phenomenal. Robert, I have to have a Cincinnati nerd out moment. I moved to Northside in 2018. I house hack a three family in Northside. I'm standing in an office on Hamilton Avenue, a building that I've renovated into office space. So I have to ask, when did you acquire your property in Northside? It's the views of matter. You're probably familiar with it right up the hill. And yes. it's, we bought it in 20, oh, now you're going to put me on the spot, 2020. It gotcha. seems like a long time ago. Actually, it's I, not, uh, not even two years. I was, so. I was not looking at deals that size two, three years ago, personally. Otherwise, sure. I would have been one of the people that you bid against. I'm aware of a few other buildings in Northside that I put LOIs in on and didn't win. And I was wondering if you got one of those, <laughs> but no, the no. Guzman area, that was too big and too long ago for me to have been your competitor. Yeah. It's a great area, as you know. And again, it doesn't really matter whether it's 282 units or a single unit. It's just a great market, a great neighborhood, a lot of cool things happening. So yeah, yeah good for you, man. That's awesome. Robert, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. Excellent. What is the best ever book you've recently read? Definitely a great book. It's called Leadership in Turbulent Times by Doris Kearns. Excellent historian. She's written a couple other books. I love history. I love kind of reading history. I feel like you can learn a lot. But it's a really great book on kind of the biography from a leadership perspective of Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, FDR, and Johnson. And I read it probably nine months ago. Excellent book. It's really good. You get different perspectives of how different people handle it, different political views. That's kind of cool, too, because you see different sides of the spectrum. But it's a great book on leadership and something that I think probably anybody that's, even if you're not running a business, even in your work, it's just a great read on leadership. So highly recommend it. I've added it to my uh, Audible wish list. There you go. Cool. What is your best ever way to give back? The number one way for us currently is we go to a church here in Bradenton and we've got a lot of folks that come into town because Florida is kind of like the vacation state. So particularly pastors, they're burned out. You know, they got to deal with people like us all day long. <laughs> so we actually decided about a year ago that we would create a space for them. We call it our guest house and we've just dedicated them so they can come here, check out, take a week in Florida. These people don't make a lot of money. So it's a great opportunity for us to give back and just let them kind of chill out, have some peace and quiet. And hopefully when they go back, they feel rejuvenated and re-energized and ready to go back and help all of us out in our many problems and issues. <laughs> so. What is thus far in your commercial real estate investing career, what is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson you've learned from it? There's a lot to that list, but I would say probably the biggest mistake that I've made is not being careful enough when it comes to picking partners. And with all of our deals currently, I'm the managing partner, but in the past I've shared partnership responsibilities. I've had some really great partners, but all it takes is one and that challenges your deal. So going forward, I just realized, hey, I've got to be really careful with that to make sure that I've got people in alignment with what I'm doing and they put others first and they really want to focus on making sure that the deal gets done correctly. And the great thing is it's not the majority. So I like to keep a positive spin on it, but I think it can be challenging. You definitely want to make sure that all your partners are with you and really focused on what if this deal goes south? Do we have the capital? Are we all on the same page? Are we willing to chip in? 
are we willing to do what it takes? I'm thankful that I have a really great team of guys that I've worked with on deals over the last four years. Some awesome people, some that are still with us, some that we're not partnering with anymore, but just some really good people. And that's probably the biggest thing I've learned is that I think it's really important to pick your partners carefully and make sure that you get to know them and make sure that they all do the right thing and take care of the deal and take care of the investors. On that note, Robert, what is your best ever advice? Same thing, I guess. That's a big piece of advice, I would say, too. But also from a investor standpoint, kind of the same thing. I talk to a lot of investors every week. I'm sure you do, too. And I always tell them, look, guys, number one, get to know your sponsor get to feel for who they are, dig into their character. Yeah, you can see what they perform, but you really want to get to know their character because again, it comes back to people. The people that we invest in are really at the end of the day, how we're going to do. So I'm a big relationship guy. I encourage people to really spend time to get to know their sponsors, their GPs, whatever you want to call it. And I think that's really powerful and it'll help you go further faster as an investor. And there's a lot of folks that have their own deals and then they invest some money. They kind of do a little bit of both. Same thing. Take that time to get to know somebody. I think that's important. And I would say kind of along those same lines, if you are a operator like we are, our motto, our kind of business plan is it's not numbers. It's the right deal and the right people. And as long as we can continue to find the right people to manage the right deals, we'll continue to grow. But we're not growing for growth's sake. That's for sure. And I think you got to keep that compass before you at all times because we're in a great market and it's easy to get caught up in the hype, but you want to make sure that you keep your core focus where it needs to be. Robert, where can people get in touch with you? Probably easiest, just my email, robert at REM Capital. Not too complicated. (laughs) Happy to chat, connect anytime. And that link is in the show notes. Robert, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this conversation, please subscribe to our show. Please leave us a five-star review and please share this with a friend who you know that we can add value to with this conversation about leverage, adding value, and making investment decisions based on debt and cash flow. Thank you and have a best ever day.